God. And thank you, Ryan. You know, just a reminder, I know that you know this because you're a sensible group of people. Uh, but Jeremiah's declaration, great is thy faithfulness, came at probably the lowest point in the history of the people of Israel. And out of the depths of darkness and despair, when everything seemed to be wrong, Jeremiah's cry was, great is thy faithfulness. What a great, what a great blessing. When I was a student at the University of Georgia a long, long time ago, and I was there for a long, long time. Um, a friend of mine actually had a radio program six o'clock to nine o'clock on Sunday morning on WUOG that, that played contemporary Christian music. And um, he asked me to, to help him to be his assistant to fill in when he wasn't there. And the most important thing that I had to do or that he had to do at the beginning and the end of that program was to say, the views expressed on this program are not necessarily those of WUOG, the University of Georgia, or the state of Georgia. If, if we didn't give that disclaimer at the beginning and the end, big trouble. So I, I want you to know tonight that the views expressed tonight are not necessarily those of Pastor Josh or Pastor Scott. So if I say something really crazy, you, you don't need to email them. If you have a question, you can certainly ask me if you have a complaint email my wife. So the one truth, if you have a handout, uh, the one truth that we're thinking about tonight is, is the goal of missions. And so the, the next five weeks is kind of equipping us to, to live a life of missions tonight. We're just kind of laying our groundwork and thinking about the motivation of missions, the goal of missions. And what I want us to focus on is this one truth. The goal of missions is worship. The goal of missions is worship. In the words of John Piper, missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship exists because missions doesn't. Now, to guide us, I want us to look at some verses in John chapter 4. If you have your Bibles, we'll spend most of our time in, in John chapter 4, which is the recording of the encounter that Jesus has with the Samaritan woman at the well. And my intent tonight is not to go through that whole story or to expound that encounter. I think that most of us are very familiar with that story. What I want us to do is focus really at the end of that story and then the, the transition as Jesus moves back and forth between the woman at the well and his disciples and their response to what has transpired and to see that interplay between Jesus and the disciples within the context of that bigger story. So we're not going to think about or read that whole story, but I want you to be cognizant of that whole story as we, as we focus on the end of it and, and particularly as that, how that bigger story relates to the plan of missions to carry the gospel to the world. Okay, so we have four points that we kind of want to revolve our thoughts around as, as, we, as we go through this. I, I'm going to spend the bulk of my time on the first point. So if it's almost time to go and I'm just finishing the first one and you're thinking, oh my goodness, this is going to go forever. Well, it might go forever if, if you know my reputation, but I, I will stop on time. But we're going to spend more time on the first point. So here's the first truth I want us to, to think about. It's simply this, that the Father seeks worshipers. 
God seeks worshipers. So let's, let's read from John chapter 4. Let's just begin reading in verse 19 and read the, the few verses that deal with the end of this encounter between Jesus and the woman of the well. Beginning in verse 19, Sir, the woman replied, I see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, yet you Jews say that the place to worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus told her, believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming who is called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. I am he, Jesus told her, the one speaking to you. So the, the priority of God, the, the real commitment of God, the pursuit of God is his praise. The supreme love of God is God. The, the ultimate reason for all that God does is the manifestation and the exaltation of his glory. He created all things and he governs his world in such a way to bring him glory. J.I. Packer said, the only answer that the Bible gives to the questions that begin with, why did God, is for his own glory. Pastor Josh talked a couple of weeks ago uh, on his sermon about uh, politics, and he said basically everything goes in the Jesus box. You remember that? And, and he was saying that we, we live every aspect in light of our relationship with Jesus. And, and that is so that ultimately Jesus is praised because the focus of God is the praise of his name. This is something that actually goes all, all the way back to, to the beginning. And if we were to go back and look, for example, at the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11, we find that the people had been sent out. God told the people to, to go out and to fill the earth. And the people said to themselves, we're, we're going to stay. We found a nice place. And instead of going abroad, let's stay right where we are. And let's build a tower. And this is what they said in Genesis 11:4. Let us make a name for ourselves. Let's make a name for ourselves. In other words, let's stay here so that we can exalt our own name. We can make ourselves a reputation. We can, we can build our own fame in this place. So God came down and he said, no, actually, you're not going to do that. I want you to be scattered. I don't want you to stay. When you stay, you make a name for yourself. But my purpose for you is not for you to make a name for yourselves. My purpose for, is for you to make my name known. And we, we can see this if we, 
If we'll go back to Genesis 9, you, you don't necessarily have to turn there, I want, but I do want to read a few verses because this is, this is the command that God gave to Noah and his family when they came off the ark. This is the first thing that God tells them. Genesis chapter 9, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That is, have kids, have a whole lot of kids, and spread out. Cover the earth. Verse 2. The fear and terror of you will be in every living creature on the earth, every bird of the sky, every creature that crawls on the ground, and all the fish of the sea. They are placed under your authority. Every living creature will be food for you. As I gave the green plants, I have given you everything. This is important. As people populate and spread out and fill the earth, what are they doing? They are carrying the authority of God. They are the ambassadors representing the creator, managing all of creation. They are carrying the authority of God. Wherever they go, creation is being exposed to the glory of God's power. He is the one who created all things. He has placed all things under the dominion of Noah and his family and their children and their children and their children as a manifestation of the glory of God. Well, let's continue in verse four. However, you must not eat meat with its lifeblood in it. I will require the life of every animal and every man for your life and, and, and your blood. I will require the life of each man's brother for a man's life. Whoever sheds man's blood, his blood will be shed by man. For God made man, how? In his image. Man is the image bearer of God. And so everywhere that Noah and his family go, not only are they carrying the authority of God, they are carrying the presence of God. As Noah and his family and their children and their children and their children spread through the earth, they are manifesting the authority of God. They are manifesting the presence of God. And I would also suggest that they are carrying the grace of God because the only reason Noah and his family are here is because of God's grace. God has preserved them through the time of judgment. God has brought them out and given them life God has blessed them with the opportunity to start all over again. And so as Noah and his family and their children and their children, as they populate and fill the earth, in verse 7 he says again, be fruitful and multiply, spread out. That's a word that means swarm. Cover the earth. Why? Because as you go, you are carrying the glory of God. You are extending the glory of God. You are manifesting the authority and the grace and the power of God. The presence and the power and the provision of God is being made known as you go. So God's purpose was the spreading of his glory, the manifestation of his rule, the demonstration of his grace, and so when people said, no, we're going to stay here, we're going to make a name for ourselves, that is completely contrary to the stated will and purpose of God that they would go. God said, go and extend my glory. God's concern was for his glory to be manifested. Now, 
Let's be honest. This makes us a little uneasy, doesn't it? I mean, when, when we say things like the supreme love of God is God, when we say things like the focus of God is his own glory, it comes across as kind of unseemly, doesn't it? It comes across as a little bit arrogant. As if, if, if we're watching a football game and the team that wins, the quarterback gets interviewed and they say, tell us about the game. And he says, listen, I just really want this to be all about me. And you know what? This team is really squat without me. And we won because of me. I did this and I want you to talk about me. I want you to write an article about me. I want you to have a television program about me. I want this to be about my glory. We would probably say, I'm not cheering for that team anymore. That's just way too arrogant. Or, or, or when we say that God saved me primarily for his praise, when we say that God's desire is for me to give him glory, we're, we're tempted to think, well, is there, is there anything in this for me? Is God just simply using me to get something for himself? It's like, I, I don't know if you ever did this. When I was a kid, this is terrible. I, sometimes I would buy birthday presents for my brother that I really wanted for myself. So like I would see the latest album that I really wanted. And I would think, man, I'm, I'm going to get that for my brother for his birthday. And then I can listen to it. He did the same thing. So he would basically listen to my records. I would listen to his. But, but we were really getting presents, giving them solely for the purpose of getting for ourselves. And sometimes that can kind of cloud our minds, can it? The high priestess of, of American paganism, Oprah Winfrey, was, was asked about her rejection of the God of the Bible. She said that she heard a preacher reading from the Old Testament. And he was reading about God being a jealous God. And she said, that did it for me. She said, I'm not going to follow after a God who's sitting up in heaven filled with petty envy. Well, she has multiple problems, but a couple of big problems with that. The first is she doesn't understand what the word jealousy means. Jealousy and envy are not the same. To be jealous is to zealously guard the honor of something. But even more than that, Oprah was doing something that a lot of us commonly do she was thinking of her best self and then projecting that image onto God. So essentially, she was saying, God is just a bigger, better version of me. And so I want him to be what I think I should be. Now, as nicely as I can, we need to understand that that's bordering on blasphemy. God is not a grown-up one of us. God is not a better version of us. 
God is not the ideal man projected into heaven. So can I just very quickly share three words that I hope will help us to understand the rightness of God seeking worship. The, the first word is, is deserves, deserves. God is worthy of all praise. When he asks us to worship him, he is not asking for something that he does not deserve. He is perfect in all of his being. He is the creator and the sustainer of all things. God in his being is and has everything necessary to exist and accomplish all that he wills. In his attributes, he is infinite, possessing all of his attributes immeasurably, for his attributes arise out of his very being. God's love isn't drained when he loves us so that there's no love left for someone else. God doesn't just love, God is love. The reason he loves is because he is love. God isn't just acting in grace, he is grace. He is mercy. He is patience. He is kindness. So because his attributes arise out of his very being, they are infinite. And not only that, they are immutable. They are never changing. In fact, they are incapable of change. God will never be stronger than he is because he possesses all power. God will never be smarter than he is because he possesses all knowledge. God will never be any more present than he is because he is present in all of his being at all places in the universe at all times. God is not that quarterback who needs an offensive line and receivers and a running back. God has no needs he has no sufficiencies. He has no desires that he cannot fulfill in and of himself. There is no potentiality with God. What he is, he's always been. What he is, he always will be. He is the immortal, invisible, eternal God dwelling in the unapproachable light of his own glory. So any conversation about God needs to begin with this. He deserves praise. He is worthy of all praise. Now let's dig a little deeper and think for a second about the word demands. Because of his perfection, God deserves praise. Because of his position, God demands praise. God's position as God demands praise. We sang about the goodness of God. Listen, God is the highest good. He's the highest good. There's nothing better than God. He is the absolute 
perfect standard of goodness and righteousness. So when God promotes his own glory, when he exalts himself, when he seeks worship, he is in fact promoting the highest good. He's doing what he must do. Think about this. If my self-seeking is sinful, and it is, it's idolatry. Why is that? Why is my self-seeking sinful? My self-seeking is sinful because it is valuing something more than God. It is treasuring something more than God. But when God seeks his own glory, which in a sense is demanded from him, because if he does not seek his own praise, that would mean he's seeking something less than the highest good. That kind of makes my head hurt. But it's true. When God calls us to worship him, He's calling us to pursue the highest good that there is in the universe. So his position as the good God, in fact, demands praise. Well, let's think about the word design. Listen, God's pursuing his own glory is actually the greatest blessing that he can give us because God designed us as the climax of his creation. He designed us and made us in his image so that we would be most blessed, most joyous, most delighted when we live for his glory, when we treasure him above all things. Wasn't that the heart of Pastor Josh's sermon Sunday? We find our satisfaction and our purpose and our fulfillment where? In the presence of God. So no, God is not simply using us. He's actually blessing us by creating us to love what he loves, to pursue him. And when we find our delight and our satisfaction and our purpose in him, then our joy is fullest and most complete. When we live for his glory, we are most blessed. So God seeks worshipers, and that's a good thing. In fact, it's the best thing. So let's move to number two. God seeks worshipers. So to secure worshipers, the Father sends the Son who saves sinners and transforms them into worshipers. Let's look at verses 31 through 34. We're back in John chapter 4, verse 31. In the meantime, the disciples kept urging him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said, I have food to eat that you don't know about. The disciples said to one another, could someone have brought him something to eat? My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work, Jesus told them. So the disciples enter the scene as the woman, the Samaritan woman, is leaving the scene. They have evidently been to town. They've been buying food. They're bringing the food, and they're concerned over the fact that Jesus hasn't eaten. 
So it's their insistence that Jesus eat physical food. So Jesus uses this to further communicate the message of what's been going on about worship to his disciples. And there is something more important, Jesus says, than eating, which is taking importance to a whole new level, isn't it? I mean, not just because we like to eat, we have to eat. We have to eat to live. And so essentially Jesus is saying there, there's something going on here that's even more important than, than life itself. Jesus wants them to understand that what he's about is not necessarily taking care of his own needs at the moment, but doing the will of God. So Jesus says, it's not that I'm not hungry. Jesus did get hungry. It's not that Jesus didn't necessarily want to eat, but Jesus is laser focused on doing the work the father had given him to do. And what is that work? Well, we see it in the context of this story. What has Jesus done with this woman? He has invaded her world. He has introduced her to the truth of the gospel. He has called her to believe. And he has taken this woman that was an alien and an enemy of God. And by his love and grace, he has transformed her into a worshiper. This is the plan that the Father has. He has sent Jesus to save people so that they become worshipers. And that's what Jesus has done. And now Jesus is taking that a step further and talking to the disciples and saying, listen, what I've been doing, I've been sharing the gospel with this woman and she's now a worshiper of God. And I want you to be equipped to continue that work. So what is the work that the Father has given to the Son? It is securing salvation for all who will believe. It is bringing sinners into a right standing with God. It is manifesting the glory of God in his love and grace so that enemies become friends who worship. And this is exactly what Jesus has done in John chapter four. Now, we love theology, right? Amen? We love theology, right? Okay, so Paul gives us the theology of this in Ephesians chapter, chapter two and three. Let me read just a, a few verses. Beginning in Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to tell you something really weird. This is the Holman Standard Bible in case you hadn't figured it out. This was like the first edition. And there are some real screw-ups in the printing. And so like one of these verses that I'm going to read has no gaps between any of the words. So if I pause a second and try to figure out what's going on, that's what it is. It's just this long, never mind. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12. At that time, Paul talking to Gentiles. At that time, you were without the Messiah, excluded from the citizenship of Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise with no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are far away have been brought near by the blood of the Messiah. That's what's happened in John chapter four. And go down to the end of the chapter in verse 19. So then you, you who were far away, 
You who did not know God, you who were aliens, you who were enemies, you who had no hope, listen, now, now, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. The whole building is being fit together in him and is growing into a holy sanctuary in the Lord in whom you also are being built together for God's dwelling in the spirit. You see what Paul is saying? Paul is saying God is taking people who are enemies, who are aliens, who are far away, and he's bringing them together in Christ and he's making something out of them. What is he making? A holy sanctuary. What is a sanctuary? It's the place where the presence of God is. He's bringing us and making us into a place of worship, into people of worship, into people who live for and love and treasure God. Now, he enunciates this a little further. Let's continue down in chapter 3. Look at verse 5 of chapter 3. This was made known to the people in other, excuse me, this was not made known to the people in other generations, as it is now is revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. The Gentiles are co-heirs, members of the same body, partners of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I was made a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace that was given to me by the working of his power. This grace was given to me the least of all the saints. Why? to proclaim to the Gentiles the incalculable riches of the Messiah and to shed light for all about the administration of the mystery hidden in the ages in God who created all things. Why? This is so that God's multifaceted wisdom may be known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavens. Why was Christ coming to make us a holy sanctuary. What was Paul doing? Paul was proclaiming the incalculable riches of Christ. And when he did that, what happened? He manifested, he declared, he extended the glory of God as people saw the wisdom of God. How God has come and invaded the world in, in Christ. And in Christ, he is bringing people from all over the world who are enemies and aliens and bringing them together in Christ to be a people who worship. That's what Christ had come to do. And Jesus did this, he says, because he wants to do the will of the Father more than he wants to eat. Jesus did this because he loved the Father and he sought to glorify the Father by doing his will. In fact, two chapters over in John chapter six and verse 38, Jesus said, I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. In his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17 and verse four, Jesus prayed, I have glorified you, speaking to the Father on the earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Jesus comes to seek and to save that which is lost. We see that in a microcosm with the woman at the well. But Jesus expands it when he says this phrase, I've come to finish it. In other words, Jesus is saying, I'm not done yet. Because what I've done with the woman at the well is just a small microcosm of what I'm going to do for the world. 
because Jesus will leave Samaria and he'll go to Galilee. He'll go back to Judea. He will live his life in perfect obedience to the Father. And then he will go to the cross. And on the cross of Calvary, he'll lay down his life as a substitute for sinners. And he will take our punishment. He will take our debt and he will fully pay for everything that we have done against God so that we can be forgiven and brought into a right relationship with the God who calls us to worship him. Listen, God not only seeks people who will worship him, he secures those very worshipers by sending his son to save them. And this is what Jesus is saying. And isn't it interesting that he said, I'm going to finish this work because we come to John 19.30. And as Jesus dies on the cross, bearing the wrath of God for our sins, when that work was completed, what did he cry from the cross? It is finished. And he did what he said he would do. And he did it to secure worshipers of Almighty God. And what happened when Jesus cried, it is finished? What happened? That veil in the Holy of Holies was rent from top to bottom. Now think about this. To be in the presence of God was essentially to be a Jew who came to Jerusalem and climbed up Mount Zion and stood outside the Holy of Holies while the high priest went in to this small, dark room on your behalf. And to be in the presence of God was essentially to stand aside, to come to one place and have a man go in on your behalf into this little room. You say go to that mountain, we say go to that mountain. You say go to this place, we say go to that place. Jesus says, listen, there's coming a time when it's got nothing to do with place. Worship has nothing to do with place. Worship has to do with a person. And that person is Jesus. When that veil was rent from top to bottom, God was saying the Holy of Holies is open. You have access. And no matter where you are, if you're in Africa or Asia, Europe or America, you don't have to go to a hill in Jerusalem to find the presence of God. You don't have to go to a hill in Jerusalem to find the presence of God. You don't have to go into a small room to worship God. You come to God in Christ anytime, anywhere. Because it is in Christ that God has secured a relationship of worship for you and me. God has secured worshipers through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus extended the glory of God from that temple to the ends of the earth. Wherever any man, woman, boy, or girl will come in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ, they are welcomed into the presence of God. Our third thought, the son who saves in order to secure worshipers, then sends those worshipers to spread the word. Verse 35, back in chapter four, verse 35. Don't say there are still four months and then the harvest. Listen to what I'm telling you. Open your eyes and look at the fields for they are ready. 
They're ready for the harvest. The reaper is already receiving pay and gathering fruit for eternal life. So the sower and the reaper can rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true. One sows and other reaps. I sent you to reap in what you didn't lab- for what you didn't labor for. Others have labored and you have benefited from their labor. Jesus says, I want you to, I want you to take a moment and, and look and, and just think what they saw. Because this is a, a really graphic picture. Jesus says, look at the fields and they look and what do they see? Well, what's happening in verse 30? In verse 30, the people left the town and made their way to him. The citizens of the town who have talked to the woman at the well are coming out to see Jesus. And Jesus says, look. Look, the fields are ripe unto harvest. And if those disciples look, they see a whole town coming. And those disciples are going to get to reap the benefit of what that woman did when she went and said, I met this man who must be the Messiah. Jesus' point is not simply that you have to be the ones who reap or you have to be the ones who sow. His point is you are called to be one who spreads the message of salvation so that the glory of God is extended to the ends of the earth and people all over the earth hear the gospel, respond to the gospel, and come to worship God. That's what missions is all about. It all goes back to worship. Our going is part of a bigger plan. The plan of God to glorify his name, to extend the glory of his name to the four corners of the earth, to secure worship there and everywhere through the sacrificial work of the son and the proclamation of that work to the world by his people who are, by the way, empowered by the spirit of God. This is a very Trinitarian plan, Acts 1-8. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are working together to ensure that people will hear and they will respond and they will be saved and they will come together to worship. When I was in seminary, I had a couple of professors, husband and wife. They both had their doctorates. They were a real paradox. Dr. Mrs. Fitz taught grammar and research. Y'all didn't even get that, did you? Dr. Mr. Fitz taught Christian education. They had been missionaries in Peru for 25 or 30 years. And and in their time in Peru, God had given them, in human terms, great success. There There had been a great harvest in their ministry. A lot of people saved. A lot of churches started. And they were being acknowledged on one occasion and Dr. Fitz, Mr. Dr. Fitz made this statement. He said, you know what? We learned a very important lesson in missions. And it's this, if if you have fruit in missions, it's probably because someone has gone before you planting seed. And if you are planting seed and never seeing fruit, you can rest assured that God will bring the harvest in his time. And someone will come along and reap that harvest. That's all that Jesus is saying. Some of you are going to reap. Some of you are going to sow. But all of you have a part. And look, there's an urgency. 
God is seeking worshipers. And there are men and women, boys and girls, who need to hear the gospel and respond in faith so that they too will become worshipers. And so God has secured worship. And, and, and what happens? This is, uh, this is really cool. I'll finish in just a minute. This is, this is, Matthew said that that clock was 15 minutes behind, so it's 7.15. I'm almost done. But this, don't miss this. Don't miss this. Look at verse 39. Look at verse 39. Now, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of what the woman said when she testified. Now, think about this. This is an area where there's been no gospel. There are zero worshipers of God. Zero worshipers of God. Jesus comes. He proclaims the gospel. And there's one worshiper. That worshiper goes back to town. And now there's a whole city coming out to worship. Why is that important? More people, more praise. More praise. More praise. More worship. Look, look at the last verse. Look at verse 42. Look at verse 42. We no longer believe because of what you said, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this really is the Savior of the world. Think about this. In just a few moments, Jesus has gone from being a Jewish man to being regarded as a Jewish prophet to being contemplated as maybe being the Messiah to now being proclaimed the Savior of the world. More awareness, more worship. More awareness, more worship. This is, this is why this fits in with worship and community. We worship, and as we worship, we experience the presence of God, and we, we grow in our love for him. We grow in our, our worship of him, and we, we gather. And when we gather in community, what are we doing? We're learning about him. And the more we learn about him, the fuller our worship is. The more we love him, the more we worship him because we learn about him. And our worship just grows. And as our worship grows, God is honored. And then we are called to take what we have learned and what we have experienced and carry that until every person in every nation has heard the gospel until that day when all the redeemed will gather around the throne adoring the lamb in worship. And this is the end result. This is the heart of worship in Revelation chapter 7, after this I looked and there was a vast multitude where from every nation, every tribe, every people, every language, which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were robed in white with palm branches in their hands and they cried out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. That's what missions is about. Missions is about recognizing the glory and the worth of Jesus and realizing he's worth my sharing. There's a lot of motivations for missions, a lot of biblical motivations that are good, that are biblical. Should I go because I love the lost? Of course. 
Jesus looked at the lost and he had compassion in his heart and he said, pray that the Lord will send forth laborers. That's a biblical motivation. Should we go because we want to obey Christ? Of course we should. Jesus said, if you love me, you obey my commandments. That's a biblical motivation. But I, I want to suggest to you that while those are good and biblical, they're not complete. The real motivation for missions is when I recognize that Jesus is worthy of my worship and he's worthy of my neighbor's worship. He's worthy of the nation's worship. He's worthy of all of creation being captivated and consumed with his glory. He's worthy of that. He's worthy of our worship. And because he's worthy of our worship, he's worthy of our going. And so the real question I think for us when we think about missions is do we value the glory of God? Do we value the glory of God enough to want our neighbor to worship him? To want our world to worship him? And the way to prepare our hearts for missions is to prepare our hearts for worship. Let's pray.